0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: At the start of his administration, President Biden released the Build Back Better Framework, an ambitious plan to create jobs and protect the environment. But Senator Joe Manchin recently came to the table on a different bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. But what's in the bill? We'll talk to Washington Post reporter Jeff Stein about it. Plus, a recent Michigan court decision could have a major impact on the minimum wage in this state. We'll discuss that plus the primary results with Craig Mauger of the Detroit News. That's coming up on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. day and welcome to Detroit Today. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson. Build Back Better once held a lot of promise. As President Biden's signature legislation, it was offering universal pre-kindergarten, free community college, the expansion of Medicaid and Medicare, additional support for child care, 12 weeks paid family leave and more. Well, that never came to pass, in part because of West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. But Senator Manchin recently came to the table on a different bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. If passed, it would allow the most spending this country has ever put forward to specifically tackle climate change. It would also allow Medicare to negotiate the prices of some prescription drugs. And it would increase funding for the Internal Revenue Service, something that has been needed for years. What does this mean? What would happen if it were to pass? And how likely is it to pass at all? To talk about this, we have Jeff Stein, White House economics reporter for The Washington Post, who has been covering this bill. Jeff Stein, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks so
2: much for having me. That was an excellent summary at the top.
1: Well, very good. Well, I'm, I'm. first of all, thank you for that. But I really do want to get into this bill because, of course, we had the beginnings with Build Back Better, but now Manchin comes to the table with the Inflation Reduction Act, which seems timely because everyone's talking about inflation. But is it a gimmick? Is this a bill that's really going to attack inflation? And how would it even do that?
2: It's a great question. Um, most of the economists I talk to on both sides of the aisle are pretty uniform in saying that the major factors driving inflation, the, the price fluctuations we've been seeing that have been frustrating to so many Americans, are really up to, um, you know, the Federal Reserve and sort of broader macroeconomic factors like the war in Ukraine and the pandemic. Especially in the short term, it's very unlikely that this bill is going to materially reduce, you know, change the short term trajectory of inflation. but. In the long term, in particular, there is real reason to believe that by sort of um, inaugurating an enormous, enormous um, paradigm shift in how we use energy, um, getting us away from the dependence on authoritarian petrostates and the oil and gases, um, and the oil they produce, not really the gas, the oil they produce, um, and towards renewables and nuclear and... Um, hydro and all, all these other sources of energy that, that are supported in the bill, that that really could insulate Americans, maybe not from the inflation they're seeing this year, but in five, six, seven years, um, in a really important way, that, um, that could be quite a big deal.
1: We appreciate having a long-term uh, look on something like that if this bill were to pass. And we're going to get into what the likelihood of it passing is. But before we do that, I want to make sure we give you an opportunity to discuss the details of what's in the bill that you think is very significant and that listeners need to know about so that they know a little bit more about the Inflation Reduction Act.
2: Sure. It's, it's a great, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. The bill is over 750 pages and we've spent you know a lot of time pouring through it. I, I think the Easiest way to conceptualize it, I think, as you were saying, is there's there's three major components. The tax component, which is focused on more money for the IRS and a minimum tax on corporations that earn over a billion dollars um, in profits a year. There's the um, health care component, which is uh, extending health care to 13 million people on the Affordable Care Act exchanges um, and reducing prescription drug costs. And then there's the most important part, I think, is the climate and... Um, climate and energy part. And I think that's useful to break up into two major buckets. There's one set of, um, one part of the climate and energy provisions is focused on sort of production and um, uh, company level incentives. So these are tax credits primarily for renewable energy companies, for utilities, for agricultural producers, for steel manufacturers, for airlines, all to move to greener and hopefully, um, more efficient and ultimately less costly sources of energy for for American consumers. But then the second major part, which is probably what listeners will feel the most um, or or receive the most in their daily lives, is the consumer-facing side of the energy provisions, which are um, rebates for retrofitting um, your home, for putting a solar panel on top of your roof, for um, insulating your your walls, for... um, uh, buying an electric vehicle. So a lot of these things designed to get Americans to hopefully both save money and lower their emissions footprint and reduce um, America's need for higher uh, levels of energy because, um, because we're facing this uh, catastroph- you know, catastrophic process yeah. of global warming. There's other parts of that, and I'll just note very quickly, because I know I've been talk- talking for a while, as part of this agreement, um, it gets a little complicated, but Democrats are passing this bill with 50 votes in the Senate. And in exchange to get Manchin's vote for that bill, they've, Democratic leadership has agreed to put forward a separate, a separate second bill that under the rules of the Senate procedure they're using to pass, this bill cannot be passed. And that pertains to, um, it sounds wonky, but it's really important, it's a set of environmental reforms Um, and permitting reforms that basically make it much easier to build um, fossil fuel projects, but also renewable energy projects, dramatically um, reducing the number of bureaucratic hurdles that um, energy producers currently face when they're trying to move a project from inception to completion and get it on online more quickly.
1: I appreciate that you brought up uh, Senator Manchin specifically, because as we did mention, he was one of the big holdouts and often is thought of as the most conservative member of the Democratic Party that you need to get him on board in order to pass anything with 50 votes, as you mentioned. In fact, Senator was uh, Manchin was once holding back, uh, but now he's spearheaded. This inflation Reduction Act. Here's him defending the bill on Fox News.
2: The bottom line is how in the world can you be raising taxes when all we're saying is the wealthiest com- uh, corporations in America, 55 of them pay zero to help this great country of ours. Everyone in West Virginia I know and every- most people around the country pay a 21 percent corporate or greater. So why can't the greatest a billion dollars of, of revenue a year, I mean, why can't they pay at least 15% for this great country? Are you-
1: Again, Senator Joe Manchin defending the bill and talking about tax rates. Jeff, why is he sticking his neck out on this one?
2: I think a lot of people really misjudge Senator Manchin, including you know myself at various points. Um, I thought they were going to get an agreement in the fall. That turned out to be wrong. And then I thought that they were going to walk away from um, you know a deal... Uh, this spring, and that also turned out to be wrong. I think um, the, the the I think I would give two takes one cynical and one not cynical. So, what's, what's the cynical take here? The cynical view of this is that Manchin um, knows that his time as the most powerful member of the Senate is dwindling, that he feels that his power is about to dissipate, and that he is looking for um, an opportunity to maximize. Um, you know, his his moment in the spotlight to show that he's um, someone who is bringing the country together to a centrist place and sort of um, exer- exerting his, his power, um, you know, in a, in a way that's important. So that That's, that's uh, maybe the cynical view. And I think the non-cynical view, which I don't google out, is that Manchin has genuine ideological policy commitments and was genuinely uncomfortable with both the amount of spending authorized in the bill in the uh, initial Democratic proposals and sort of felt that one thing he said over and over and over and over again was that he was concerned that the initial versions of the bill put America on a trajectory to move too quickly from um, a carbon-intensive source of um, energy production to a decarbonized energy production. And, and, And he said, you know, over and over again that why are we, you know, there's a risk if we move to evs and um, renewables that the supply chain to make those possible run through a lot of foreign countries and if we give up you know american oil and gas production we will be at the whims of um, australia and south korea and all these other countries that we need for the inputs um for um you know lithium batteries and cobalt and other um you know critical minerals that are essential for renewable energy production so I think it's probably some combination that he had some real commitments that Democrats were willing to move towards, and then also that he, um, he knows that you know, it's August and Democrats could be out of power quite soon. Uh, we understand that Chuck Schumer, the Democratic majority leader, told Manchin, like, you know, we have to move now. And that probably made Manchin realize that if he didn't, you know, after months and months and years, that really at this point of stringing Democrats along, that if he didn't come to a yes, um, there would be uh, no further opportunities for him to, to get what he wanted in a bill.
1: Right. You got to remember our uh, political bodies, they have people involved in them and there can be a lot of competing interests. Sometimes the cynical wins out, sometimes non-cynical, sometimes they can work in tandem. But for people who are looking at how this process of this bill is going right now, another person who might be trying to flex their political muscle, Jeff, is uh, Senator Cinema in Arizona, uh, I know that Kristen, Kirsten Cinema is a holdout right now. Why is she stopping the bill from being passed at this moment?
2: Uh, I don't know if you guys saw the Onion headline. About this. It
1: <laughs> I did funny. not. Tell me, though.
2: It was like, uh, Senator Sinema, um said President Biden, like, I'll take your tie, too. Right. <laughs> <laughs> As like a condition of the, supporting the deal. Um, I thought, you know, we, we, we reported yesterday that she has a few, what, to me to be pretty small. Um, uh, uh, you know, the, the big one appears to be that she wants uh, a somewhat minor tax provision in the bill that has to do with how private equity and real estate firms, h- how long they have to um, hold on to um, their basically like what they get paid out um, from from um, investment deals to qualify for the lower capital gain tax rate. Um, as opposed to paying ordinary income, so Democrats have been talking for a long time about, and actually President Trump uh, also supported this closing the carried interest loophole, which basically allows these um, private equity managers to be paid a much lower tax rate than you you or I would if we were, you know, you know, paying the ordinary income tax rate. Right. Um, she she seems to have concerns about that. It's not clear um, if Manchin will go along with her ask to, to get rid of it, but that seems to be her number one ask. She's also. Raising concerns about this minimum tax that I mentioned, if I ha- i don't know how long I have—but just to give you a quick um, upshot of this debate. Yeah, go for it. This minimum tax—the way it works—is it, it says corporations can no longer claim deductions such that they are able to zero out their tax liability. So right now, um, you know, as, as the clip you were playing for Mansion shows, there's dozens of cor- big corporations every year that are able to claim tax breaks on things like R&D and renewable energy credits, and that allows them to get their tax liability to zero or close to it. Right. And so there's this debate about, you know, that seems unfair to a lot of people because, you know, these are large profitable corporations. Why should they be paying nothing? And then on the, on the other hand, the other experts, you know, tax nerds in D.C. will say, you know, that's true, but the point of these tax credits is to encourage this kind of behavior like investment. And. Um, there's actually kind of a contradiction in that the democratic tax, you know, the democratic energy provisions here are encouraging corporations to take these tax subsidies to move towards renewable energy. So if you limit their to the extent to which they can claim deductions to make those investments, then you're kind of like working at cross purposes with yourself. So Cinema has also raised concerns about that provision. So we'll, we'll have to see how that shakes out. I can't imagine it fails to the bill but i've been wrong about this bill before so who knows
1: well i mean we were all i think surprised when it came back from the depths uh, in this way but uh, there's really seems to be some momentum right now as we're speaking to jeff stein white house economics reporter for the washington post but we also want to speak to you out there what do you make, think of the remade build back better legislation do you support health uh, healthcare expansion and higher corporate taxes what do you make of the midterms and do you think Democrats are in trouble or do you think, especially if they can pass this Inflation Reduction Act, they will do better? Give us a call. 313-577-1019 and we can take your call. Perhaps you have questions also about what's in the Inflation Reduction Act. It's a pretty big bill. And I know that, uh, Jeff, you had a lot of fun going through there and figuring out all of the intricacies and details in the bill. One of the things that you mentioned, though, Jeff, is that this is going to be uh, passed through a process uh, with 50 votes. I believe you're referring to reconciliation. Uh, for those who uh, uh, might not be so familiar, does that mean now that this uh, bill has been found to be um uh uh neutral in terms of the uh, uh liabilities that it will have for it or uh, how has it been scored by the budget office
2: yeah we, we just got the official score yesterday the way reconciliation works the, the budget procedure is it can't um add the deficit outside the the 10-year window right. um and democrats are fully in compliant with that but that said um not to bore you with too much kind of procedure um but the way the the process works is the Senate parliamentarian, um, this official in the Senate, this, you know, nonpartisan person. She gets to sort of go through the bill and decide whether parts of the bill are, um, you know, compl- what they call compliant with the so-called Bird rules. And the Bird rules within the Senate stipulate that the the provisions of the bill, because it's being passed with only fifty votes, have to. Be primarily focused on affecting the revenue and spending of the federal government so what that means is that if something is deemed too much of a policy change rather than a budget change it could be ruled out of the bill this is actually potentially a really live issue right now because for instance democrats have in their in the bill right now um let's say there's lots of examples of this but one one I, i'm thinking about is there's these you know EV credits these, um, this money for electric vehicles and right. there 's this question about whether Democrats in the bill can stipulate that the EV components for you know the, the amount of uh, money that can be got, can go to you know, reimburse someone for an EV can only be done if the components are assembled in a tr- within a trading partner so basically not China or Russia or something like that and it 's not clear if that will be allowed to be included in the bill because of these Bird rules that mean that you have to be within, you know, focused on the budgetary change. So, big parts of the bill could be changed because of
1: these confusing rules. Yeah, well, I, it it seems to be the point that we're at right now when it comes to passing legislation, but I know a lot of people are just happy that we're getting to the point where we're trying to do something and uh, move something forward to help out people as you are listening again to 1019 WDET. This is Detroit Today, and I am speaking with Jeff Stein, White House economics reporter for The Washington Post, discussing the Inflation Reduction Act, not only with him, but we also would like to speak with you. Give us a call, 313-577-1019. What do you think of the state of legislation in Michigan? Do you think the Inflation Reduction Act is accurately named? Have you been paying attention to it? What do you think of the fact that we might be close to actually passing something uh, through Congress through our elected representation? Or do you have something that you wish was in the bill? but is not been discussed so far. 313-577-1019, and we can uh, get your thoughts on about that issue as well getting back to uh the bill though as uh, i was discussing with you jeff is there anything that's not in the bill that you've been hearing from people there that they're really disappointed got cut out or you think it have a significant impact uh that we were looking for expected and build back better but got removed and uh we might have lost some people or we're close to losing some people on the progressive side when it came to that getting stripped out
2: oh man do you have half an hour
1: you hit the high point
2: (laughs) um you know, the the bill originally was set to contain the biggest transformation of the American welfare state and um, safety net programs, and you know, low low and middle income uh, support, um, free community college, a child tax credit to alleviate child poverty, um, money for the enormous housing crisis, um, dental and vision um, care, and on Medicare for seniors. So huge, huge numbers of of really critical provisions completely stripped out. There's not a single welfare state provision, arguably, in the whole bill now. Um, And, you know, Democrats have been talking about doing an FDR, LBJ style um, transformation of of that part of of the country, and that has been completely buried. So, yes, it's for many Democrats, a very bitter loss.
1: Yeah, you know, and in fact, when we think about it, I know it's been discussed as if this is somehow the new version of Build Back Better, but is it even appropriate to think of the two bills uh, in tandem? Or are they just so separate that we should really be thinking about it as just a separate thing? This is what we have right now and Build Back Better. That's for another time, or that was from another time and place.
2: I think they're definitely related. I mean, the, the core of the energy, health, and tax provisions, you know, they they... We're part of the discussion for for Build Back Better. Yeah, there there there. There's been an evolution here. It's changed quite dramatically, but. Um, it's still the same
1: Genesis, I think. With this bill starting to uh, come out the gates now, I mean, I know Republicans are really against increases in spending and things of that nature. That's how their positions are. But to the extent that there's 50 votes that could be going for this thing, and I we've heard again from uh, Joe Manchin and his strong defense of it on Fox News, do is there any opportunity or thought that you could peel some Republicans off and they might actually get on board with this bill as well.
2: Zero. Okay, I, I would take that to the bank. There is not a single Republican who will even accidentally um, speak somewhat positively of anything. <laughs> so they hate it, hate it, hate it, and they hate in particular the tax provisions, um, which of which there are, you know, two major ones: the increase in funding for the IRS, um, which they say will lead to, um, you know, tax um, collectors at your door and cracking down on small businesses and then the um, minimum tax on corporations with over a billion dollars in profit, which they say will have the effect of hurting, you know, American consumers and workers.
1: Uh, we'll get into a little bit more about the bill and keep continue our conversation with Jeff Stein here on 1019 WDET as this is Detroit Today. But we also want to hear from you as we continue. What are you thinking about this bill? What do you wish was in the bill but got stripped out? Do you have any questions about the Inflation Reduction Act? Give us a call 313-577-1019 as we continue on Detroit today. This is Detroit today on one o nine WDET. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson, where we're discussing the Inflation Reduction Act and the likelihood that it could get passed. I know, Jeff, that you got a lot more reading and things to do related to this. So I'm not going to take up all of your time, uh, but I did want to uh, give you an opportunity to just give us the top line takeaway or, uh, of what you've learned in terms of your reporting on this bill and what listeners really need to know about the Inflation Reduction Act. Can you go ahead and let us know that?
2: The most important thing to know about the bill? Yeah, the most
1: important thing for us all to know about the bill. The bottom line takeaway.
2: I think the bottom line here is that um, we have an absolute um, emergency in this country and in the planet um, with global warming. And the bill may have foregone a lot of initial aspirations to shore up um, the safety net. And that is a bitter bitter pill for many Democrats. But, but the hope here is that this bill can inaugurate a new clean energy future and that without it, that is basically impossible. And that there's there's potential hope among the climate experts and energy experts I speak to that within 10, 15, 20 years, we, as a result of, of other changes, but also in, you know really this bill in, in a large way, could um, you know create a, a renewable energy independent America that is... Um, resilient and you know capable of confronting climate change. I think that is is a historic um, deal. Whether it whether it works or not, It'll, it's a historic attempt to deal with one of the most pressing problems um, this country has ever faced.
1: All right before we let you go, we've got one call uh, from Tim in Detroit. Tim, you are on Detroit today. Go ahead with your point.
3: Hey, um, so far since the. Reagan administration, the one-percenters, and the Republicans, the only thing that's trickled down so far has been Europe.
1: one way of putting it. uh, uh, Well, Tim, I appreciate your time uh, and thanks for calling in. Uh, We're going to go on to uh, Michigan uh, uh, to discuss uh, uh, things in Michigan. But before I let you go, Jeff, I do want to thank you for your time coming in here, telling us a little bit more about the Inflation Reduction Act as uh, it was very, uh, very enlightening. So thanks for your time, Jeff. He did say that, yes. I just want to be honest. You you heard that correctly. But we're going to be moving on because we've got a lot to talk about with Michigan politics. So, Jeff, thank you for your time and uh, joining us here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much. Right now, as we continue talking, we have had a primary election that did come down, and we've got to get into... Uh, what's been happening in terms of local politics, and there are a lot of things happening right now, and we want to let you know about it. Specifically, in terms of the primaries, it's the most obvious thing that occurred on Tuesday, and the results of those elections have left us with a lot of questions about our political parties and adapting to new political maps. But what's more, it appears that Michigan's minimum wage and paid sick leave policies will change significantly in about the next seven months. To talk about all of this, we have Craig Mauger here with us. Craig covers state government and politics for the Detroit News. Craig Mauger, welcome to Detroit Today.
0: Hey, thank you so much for having me this morning.
1: Well, I mean, it's very important to discuss a lot of things happening here in Michigan. And I do want to get into what's going on with the minimum wage. But before we get into the court decision that could have a big effect on that, I just want to touch on the primaries with you. What do you think of Tudor Dixon winning the primary. Why do you think that she won? And what does it say about Michigan Republicans uh, in this state?
0: I think it says pretty loudly and clearly that Michigan Republicans are focused on trying to unseat Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. I mean, talking to voters over the last two weeks across the state, a lot of them may not have even known how to correctly pronounce Tudor Dixon's name. I heard from one who kept calling her Tudor Dillon. But they believed from what they had been able to collect uh, that she was the best candidate that gave them the best chance to go against Governor Whitmer. I mean, I talked to a bunch of voters at the polls who I said, what brought you out today? And they said, I want to get Governor Whitmer out of office. And, And that's what's driving these Republican primary voters right now.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's kind of interesting because that's kind of the reverse effect of what happened uh, four years ago. Right. Uh, When we were uh, looking at uh, who would take on uh, or who we were going to uh, put up in terms of, I should say, uh, two years ago. And when we were looking at who we're going to take on Trump with, a lot of people were thinking about that with Biden. So a lot of strategic decisions there. But uh, is there anything else that the primary told you outside of that top line race that you were really looking at and found interesting?
0: Yeah, I think, I think if you look at the turnout numbers from, from Tuesday, more than 2 million people cast ballots in a primary election that did not have a lot of competitive races on it. I think that number is something to watch. It shows the enthusiasm that's out there on both sides right now. Yeah. I think you can expect a huge turnout in November. There's going to be massive attention on this race in Michigan, and I think we're going to see a campaign – over the next three months, unlike anything we've seen in a gubernatorial election in Michigan before.
1: There are a lot of animating things going on right now, specifically stuff related to uh, amending the Constitution, about protecting uh, women's right to choice and bodily autonomy. Uh, People, obviously, as you've spoken about with Tudor Dixon, worried about trying to defeat Gretchen Whitmer uh, in the fall as well. A lot of things happening in politics, but another thing that you've been reporting on is... Uh, what's happening in terms of courts and court decisions, specifically related to minimum wage. Can you let us know what's going on right now with Michigan's minimum wage? Will it be changing anytime soon?
3: Uh, yeah,
0: th- this is the underlying story that it, that is brewing and that could impact millions of people, business owners, employees, families ac- across this state. Uh, as it stands right now, a judge has ruled that two initiated laws that were amended by Republican lawmakers in 2018 should take effect in February. And why are these laws significant? Well, they're significant because they could, the key word is could, immediately increase the state's minimum wage, which is currently $9.87 an hour, to $12 an hour. That's a massive jump. And they could also expand paid sick leave requirements for businesses across Michigan and they could really hike the minimum wage for tipped workers. Currently in the state if you work at a restaurant and you make tips your minimum wage is under four dollars an hour because of the money you make on top of it from tips. This initiated law that could be revived under these court rulings would jump that up to the standard minimum wage potentially twelve dollars an hour if this takes effect.
1: The reason this law was even in court was because there was a lawsuit about how it became uh, or came about in the first place, going all the way back to when there was a ballot initiative and uh, the outgoing uh, administration, or I should say the outgoing uh, members of the House in Michigan uh, modified the law. Can you take us back to the beginning on how we even got to this place in relation to minimum wage and how this lawsuit started out?
0: Yeah, what a what a winding road has right. led us here. But uh, yeah, it, it's somewhat like a football game that's coming down to the last two minutes and both teams have powerful offenses and one team decides we'll let the other, our opponents, score a touchdown just to give us enough time at the end of the game to go down and try to get a, a winning touchdown. You know, it's kind of counterintuitive. That's what happened here. There were two initiated laws, uh, initiated proposals that were being circulated in Michigan one to increase the sick leave requirements one to hike the minimum wage they had enough signatures to get on the ballot the way the law works in michigan is the legislature has the ability to approve these and keep them off the ballot um republican lawmakers looked at these two measures ahead of the pivotal 2018 election and said these two are going to pass what can we do about this what they did is they adopted the measures before election day keeping them off the ballot and in doing so they gave themselves the ability to return after Election Day and amend them in the lame-duck session. So these two very aggressive increases in paid sick leave and minimum wage were changed in December of 2018 to, to really delay and dampen what they were trying to do. Uh, and Rick Snyder, then governor, signed off on this, and this became the law of the land. So just kind of as one example... Under the initiated petition, the minimum wage was going to increase to $12 an hour by 2022, the year we're in now. Under what the Republican lawmakers crafted and put in place, the increase went to $12 an hour in 2030. That's quite a significant difference. Um, And what happened is this legal battle played out afterwards. Whether the Republican legislature should have been able to do this, and judges are now saying one judge has said, They shouldn't have been able to. They violated the Constitution, and now he says they need to put into place the original initiated proposal.
1: When you go about the process of putting a ballot initiative on, uh, the legislation has an opportunity to, once it makes it to the ballot, they can either adopt it, they can refuse to adopt it and then it goes to the ballot or they can put their own proposal up and then both are on the ballot and let the uh, voters choose between the two. In this case, as you mentioned, uh, they adopted it, but then after the election decided to change it in that lame duck session leading to where we're at right now. So you have this case going through the courts and uh, the attorney general at the time said, hey, we think it can work. And previously, A prior attorney general thought you couldn't do things like that when it came to the Michigan Constitution, leading to a judge making this determination, as you mentioned right now. But where are we at moving forward? Are there going to be appeals here? Has anyone told you what could be happening moving forward in this case?
0: I mean, there's going to be a massive legal battle that continues all the way up to the state Supreme Court. But many people believe that ultimately the courts are going to say what the legislature did was unconstitutional. I mean, we have a Democratic-nominated majority on the state Supreme Court. Attorney General Dana Nessel has been aggressively fighting to get the laws that the legislature put in place um, unraveled um, and repealed. So, you know, the the cards are somewhat stacked against the Republican-controlled legislature, the Michigan Chamber of Commerce, the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association, but at the same time, These groups are arguing that if these minimum wage increases are are thrown out there right now, it's going to lead to huge economic problems for them at a time of inflation, uh, already having staffing shortages, uh, dealing with the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. These are all things that uh, Michigan's businesses are still struggling with.
1: You know, it's interesting, though, Craig, uh, the reason we're even here is because of the attempted uh, alteration of the bill in the first place. Right. So to the extent that it would cause an immediate impact, I mean, that wasn't originally contemplated. uh, Have anyone thought about the ability to perhaps through legislation smooth over the increase so it wouldn't just jump from nine to 12 as a result of this uh, judicial opinion if it were to go in effect in February?
0: It, it's a fascinating question, and actually it has been brought up in the court filing. The state of Michigan has attorneys, uh, essentially, uh, the state of Michigan is on both sides of this case. There is a group of attorneys that are fighting the lawsuits to challenge the laws, and those attorneys have said in 2018, even the ballot proposal language would have phased in the increases over a period of years. And they have suggested that potentially, if the courts go forward with unraveling what the legislature did that they should maybe phase in again just down the road what the ballot proposals were trying to do so instead of phasing in over a period that ended in 2022 maybe it would phase in over a period that ends in 2026 it's it's an interesting argument but you would essentially then have a judge writing this law that affects so many people
1: It's a fascinating situation we're in here and a fascinating time to be living in Michigan. And we want to hear from you about it out there as we speak to Craig Mauger of the Detroit News. Uh, What do you make of this situation? Are you excited about the prospect of an increase in the minimum wage and the institution of a paid sick leave policy in the state? Or what do you think the minimum wage should be in the state? What kind of paid leave policies do you think we should have? And how about with politics, where we're at right now? What do you make of Trump's impact on Michigan politics? What are you thinking about the results of the primaries? Give us a call, 313-577-1019, 313-577-1019. And when we continue here on Detroit Today, we will hear from you and we will continue speaking with you, Craig, about what's going on in Michigan politics.
0: Bringing you news
4: that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor
1: City and around the world. This is
3: 1019
1: WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Nick Austin, filling in for Stephen Henderson as we speak with Craig Mauger of the Detroit News about uh, recent happenings in Michigan, specifically potential changes to minimum wage and paid sick leave. It could potentially be increasing to $12 as a result of a court decision following uh, an attempt by the outgoing Republican administration, outgoing Republican Congress in Michigan uh, to change uh, a law, a ballot initiative that would have gradually increased the minimum wage so that puts us in this situation right now where we could be looking at a big jump and we want to hear from you 313-577-1019 are you a business owner are you a worker Uh, how would this affect your day-to-day and your operations we want to know give us a call 313-577-1019 as lucy in detroit did lucy go ahead you're on detroit today hi thanks for
4: taking my call um I actually co-founded Rose's Fine Food on the east side of Detroit with my cousin, Molly Mitchell, um, almost a years ago, and we started the restaurant based on the premise that we would pay people well above the minimum wage, even tipped workers, because the writing on the wall at that time, even 10 years ago, was such that, you know, we have to start building our businesses with the idea that we have a dignified wage. Um, done a lot of work through, um, restaurant opportunity center of Michigan and, um, the raise movement to try to, you know, work with, in Congress and all these different areas. Um, basically my comment is that if you have a business that hasn't been doing these practices for a while already. And you're just kind of paying people an exploitative wage, and that's how your business runs. And you don't have a viable business, and that's capitalism. And a lot of the people making noise about it right now are the ones that only want to pay tipped servers, you know, three to five dollars an hour.
3: Lucy, you
1: make a wonderful you you make a wonderful point. Um, Sometimes I wonder about if your business isn't profitable. Maybe the business is not operating or is not in a market where there's actually a demand for that product if you can't make it on the margins. Are, is your business able to, are you still able to turn a profit with the uh, what you do in terms of paying your own servers and people above that minimum wage? Are you still turning a profit with your business?
4: Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not in the business anymore personally, but my, but my cousin Molly that runs it, yes, she has been, she's been doing this, like I said, for almost 10 years. And you know, it is it is hard for to run a small business, no matter what kind of business you're in. But yeah. again, keeping employees means taking care of them, and you know your turnover is not as high. And there's like actually a lot of benefits to paying people more. You're, you know, it's it's just really, yeah, it's, it's totally doable. There's ways to do it. You just have to build it into your business model up front, and if that means being dynamic and switching. Some of the things you do in your business, which I know Molly's done over the years, then, you know, yeah, she's made it work. And people at Roses make, you know, almost 20 bucks an hour. Yeah. So, um it's totally
1: possible. I really appreciate your insight, especially as someone who has operated and uh, had to deal with this issue, Lucy. Thanks so much for calling with that point. Really do appreciate it. Uh, Craig, what have you been hearing it from business owners related to this? Anything similar to Lucy, or are they coming out on the other side?
0: I think it's definitely the, an example of the push and pull that's happening right here. The businesses want to have a predictable regulatory environment where, you know, the minimum wage doesn't jump uh, multiple dollars an hour suddenly because of a court decision. I mean, they they are arguing that, all right, even if you want to put this policy policy in place, that's not the way to do it. Uh, The individuals on the other side of this, however, have argued, and this is an argument that definitely deserves attention, that if the courts are going to say what the legislature did was unconstitutional, then there are workers across the state of Michigan who have illegally had this money withheld from their paychecks because of what the legislature did. Oh. Um, and it's not the business's fault. Right. It, it, it was the legislature doing something that was not constitutional in their mind. So, I mean, those are the two arguments here. And you can, you can have some sympathy for both arguments.
1: Yeah, now this is an excellent point you made there, Craig. I appreciate that. As we move now to Sue and Warren. Sue, you're next on Detroit Today.
4: Uh, yes, I just wanted to say this is all a moot point. To me, this is just like debating how many angels will dance on the head of a pin. because the market now demands $15 an hour, and if you don't pay it, you can't get anyone to work for you. Just look around. I wouldn't work for less than 15 unless you don't have a car and have to walk. Nobody will work for less than $15 an hour, and that is why businesses are not getting people.
1: Yeah, thank you for your mm-hmm. point, Sue. And uh, we have been seeing that people have had difficulty finding uh, employment. Go ahead, Craig. I know you had a point on that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think she makes a, a really interesting point that, that that is part of this is that wages have been kind of going up somewhat naturally because of what is happening with the workforce shortages and how low unemployment is is right now. And you know, I don't I don't have the data on how many people this is going to impact. I, I know when they were looking at the paid sick leave requirements in twenty eighteen, they the analysts were saying that that would impact potentially a thousand I mean excuse me, a million workers in the state of Michigan who were employed by businesses that had fifty or fewer workers in terms of the change the Republican lawmakers made. Uh, Whether all of those million people already had sick leave that was kind of voluntarily offered by their businesses or not, we don't know. But, you know, I I think the point that she's making is, is a valid one. Yeah. And it's it's something that I would love to see more data on.
1: Craig, you got to help me out here, and maybe you don't even know, right? Uh, <laughs> outside of my friends calling me cheap all of the time, and you know, I love business owners, I do, and I want restaurants to be profitable, and I love servers, but I logically do not understand why we're allowed to pay one group of people at one rate, and somehow the other not at the same rate. If there's a quote unquote minimum wage. Even if all of a sudden, as a result, tipping just became something that became the norm, I don't know how it got worked into policy. Is there any discussion about that issue in terms of just the ability to tax people at different rates or, uh, or uh, getting out of that model that we came into?
0: Yeah, I mean, it has been a major legislative point of debate for, for many years. And the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association, I mean, th- this is one of their main issues. They, they have fought and opposed any effort to try to make the tipped minimum wage mirror the, the standard minimum wage. I mean, that has been a focus of that organization. They have argued in this issue with this court case that if uh, the court suddenly bumped up the tipped minimum wage, to $12 an hour, that that would be catastrophic for restaurants in the state. Um, it is a major point of contention. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I get I, the ability, if you're a business and you can offload your uh, salary requirements on your paying customers, well, then I guess it'll go on and bless you for it. But uh, <laughs> I want to move on to uh, David in Royal Oak, who wants to discuss what's going on in terms of the state of Michigan, Trump and uh, Tudor Dixon. Uh, David, go ahead. You're on Detroit today.
3: Uh, hello. Hi. Uh, I believe, uh, well, a question was asked whether uh, we listeners think that uh, Trump is having an effect on the Michigan election. And I think absolutely. I think there's a difference between Trump forces and Republican forces. And Tudor Dixon uh, had a massive influx of money from Trump, not necessarily necessarily. Re- republican forces uh michigan even though republicans and former president trump say that the states should uh you know uh govern, basically govern themselves make laws for themselves michigan is being used through the influx of money from people like the devos family and also dart money mm. to promote their own candidates such as to
1: Sure. Uh, well, uh, we have yeah. discussed a lot, David, and I do appreciate your call on uh, money and politics and the effect that that can have. And a lot of that came through in the primaries. Craig, when it comes to money and politics, is there anything going on right now on how we could modify that in Michigan? Is it even a discussion? What have you been hearing and seeing related to that and David's point?
0: I mean, it, it has not been a topic of legislative banter and Lansing. I mean, essentially, we have record amounts of money flowing into all of our state elections, and the people who are running in those campaigns are, are fine with that right now. And, and David David's point's valid, but it's on the Democratic side, too. Our As a key battleground state, our elections have become nationalized. It has allowed Governor Whitmer to raise record amounts of money. She's raised millions of dollars from out-of-state donors who have you know, caught in a, you know, caught attention to what she's doing and want to support her work in a state where she's going to face a competitive race. So it's happening on both sides of the aisle. There are billionaires who are supporting Governor Whitmer's campaign as well it's a little more evident with Tudor Dixon right now because of how large of a role those specific donors played in getting her through the primary.
1: Yeah, yeah, excellent point there. I appreciate your call, David. Want to make sure to get you in on that point. Thank you for your time. As we move now to Paul in Wayne. Uh, Paul, you're on Detroit Today. Go ahead. Hey,
3: guys. Uh, Craig, Walter Pete Durrell here. Uh, yeah, so, uh, right. The um, government should not be meddling in the economy, Uh, but uh, the legislature does a lot of that, whether it's minimum wage, whether it's, um, oh, lodging taxes, Um, those get passed with bipartisan support in both the House and the Senate. Uh, The chamber, business leaders who generally support these lodging uh, taxes uh, are against minimum wage it's like they want their cake and eat it too um and uh so uh, you know um
1: paul what i'm hearing from you is to the extent that both sides agree with it and they're the experts in their field we should let them uh, do what they want if they say we don't want this increase in minimum wage and there's bipartisan support then that's what we should do they're the experts in the field craig what are you hearing related to that what do you have for paul's point
0: I, I think the point that he, that he is making is, is one that's persisted for a long time, that, you know, businesses should not, should decide all this for themselves and let the market decide. I mean, that, that is, that's an argument that's been out there as well. I, I, I think it's unfortunate that in this primary race among the Republican gubernatorial candidates, this did not become a larger topic of debate. We don't really know right now where Tudor Dixon stands on the minimum wage. Where does she stand on paid sick leave requirements? She has voiced some level of support for for sick leave but we don't know how she exactly is going to go about that uh and when you talk about the economy is supposed to be one of the core issues of this election uh, these are core economic issues that hopefully you know are discussed and, and are at the forefront as governor whitmer and, and Tudor dixon debate here in the, the next few few months
1: Right on, as it is uh, Detroit today here on 1019 WDET. I got time for one last call. Aaron in Detroit, you're on Detroit today. Aaron, go ahead with your point in Detroit.
4: Oh, Hi. Hi. Just wanted to uh, chime in about the minimum uh, wage uh, debate. I just like to say that um, I really have no sympathy for businesses who claim that, like, oh, these increases will detri- be detrimental to their businesses and they couldn't possibly do it. Having a business is a privilege, not a right. And if your business requires or relies on the exploitation of your workers, then you shouldn't have a business. You don't have a viable business or a profitable one if it requires that you exploit your workers. To me, it's um, basically an elevated form of slavery. So I have no sympathy for that. $12, $9 is like wages we should have had in the 90s. It's
0: 2022-2022.
1: Hey Aaron, I, I appreciate your point. We're coming up on the end. I just want to give Craig 30 seconds to uh, respond. Go ahead, Craig.
0: Yeah, I mean, the argument it has, has resonates with lots of people in Michigan, and it's probably one of the reasons why the legislature decided not to let this go to the ballot in 2018.
1: Yeah, well, thank you so much for your time, Craig and Aaron in Detroit. Thank you again for calling as this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. The show is produced by Sam Corey, and our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevathan. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. Tune in tomorrow when we'll talk to Zane Asher about her memoir, and how we find passion and success despite tragedy. That's our time here on Detroit Today. We'll see you again tomorrow. Thanks so much for tuning in.